industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Weiss is a staff research physician serving the Translational Addiction Medicine Branch of the National Institute on Drug Abuses Intramural Research Program. Uh, she's a physician and a PhD, and she earned her PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry. She's triple board certified in emergency medicine, addiction medicine, and medical toxicology. And her research interests include novel psychoactive substances, medication misuse, and improving interpretation of urine drug testing. So thank you, Stephanie. Um, let, me, let me hand the Zoom session to you. I'm gonna be changing gears here a little bit and talking about fentanyl rather than methylmercury, but some of the patterns of repeated episodes will certainly hold still. So I want to remind everybody about fentanyl itself. And remember fentanyl is, we think about it now in terms of illicit use, but it does have an extensive pharmaceutical background as well. And, and initially uh, was approved for pharmaceutical use. And it's been around for a good amount of time since 1960 when it was synthesized in Belgium by the Janssen company. And it did come to this country initially as a combination product called Innovar that had it mixed with droperidol, and that was done to prevent misuse of the compound. But a few years later, it did become available for solo use. And then about a decade after that, in 1981, it went off patent. And so once it went off patent, it was, of course, much cheaper, and it was used much more widely, and particularly in, in hospitals. Uh, and so one of the first, uh, or, or some of the first reports of people misusing fentanyl actually occurred among hospital staff and particularly anesthesiologists and, and other anesthesia providers just because they had the access to it. And the th if you think about, well, what about fentanyl makes it so, so appealing, both as a pharmaceutical compound and also to misuse, one of which is that it is highly fat-soluble or lipophilic, which means it can cross the blood-brain barrier easily and it, and it works quickly. And the other thing is we, we are kind of, um, I think, jaded or, or, or not really appreciative of how potent fentanyl was at the time of its synthesis 60 years ago, because now we have many uh, analogs of fentanyl and, and other synthetic opioids that are much more potent. But at the time of the synthesis of fentanyl in the early 1960s, it actually was the most potent opioid that was known. All right, so I'm going to show you a few graphs now. These are data from the CDC about the, the fentanyl epidemic that's currently going on. And I think none of this will be a surprise to anybody, but probably everyone's aware about 20 years ago, we started having a, a noticeable increase in opioid overdose deaths. And so if you look at the turquoise line that is showing the, these are, are primarily through pharmaceutical opioids. And then when the government began to crack down on those, then people stopped physicians stopped prescribing them, people stopped being able to get them, and we started seeing an increase in use of heroin. So now about 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago, we started seeing more increases in heroin use and heroin overdose deaths. And then there is a, a more recent wave in the past eight, eight or so years now having to do with synthetic, uh, and these are the purple, the purple line here, the synthetic overdoses of opioids. And so I've circled here this area of 2013 to 2014, that's typically cited as the time or the, the point at which we see this inflection and all of a sudden there's this massive increase in synthetic opioid overdoses, including fentanyl. These data are similar. So the 
orange ones are also from the CDC and it has actual numbers associated with it, but it's similar to what we were just looking at in the previous graph. And then the turquoise line is from the DEA and that has to do with um, when they would um, get, uh, it's basically having to do with how many of the of the exhibits they've gotten when they when they when they get fentanyl from um, now from actual shipments. So you can see for both of these again, you have an increase that's occurring again approximately in that 2013 to 2014 period of time, and and it it's both for the shipments of drugs of illicit. These are now illicit fentanyl. So most of, just to remind everybody, most of the fentanyl in the drug supply is actually not pharmaceutical fentanyl. It's it's coming illicitly from other countries into this country. So that's why the DEA is now also finding more of it in the exhibits that they find. Okay, so then the question is, all right, fentanyl's been around for 60 years, and we know that it's been available on its own for 50 years, and it's been really cheap for about 40 years. So what happened between the 1980s and more recently, where was all the fentanyl all up to this point? And because we kind of have this idea, well, there wasn't a problem with fentanyl really until the past eight to 10 years. And so the whole... Uh, Point of this talk is to show you that's actually not true. The, the answer to this question is we've had fentanyl and fentanyl analogs here all along. So this story is going to start out in California, which as many things do, this is there was a report of something called quote the bogus drug. And it started out in the in the San Francisco area, specifically in an area called Contra Costa, which is across the bay there from San Francisco. And what happened was in 1980, the middle of 1980, there were some patients who had opioid use disorder and they went to a methadone clinic. And then as now methadone was not able to be provided by anybody, it had to be given in certain, in certain clinics and, and licensed. And so these folks went there and, and they tried to get help for their, for their opioid use disorder. They wanted to be put on opioid agonist therapy with methadone. And all five of them wound up being declined because they tested negative when they got their urine drug screen. And so the patients were actually very, or these prospective patients were surprised because they said, no, really, I'm using opioids, I need help. I'll take the test again. And these were not people who knew each other. This was not something that they set up ahead of time and, and, and they were not trying to game the system or anything like that. They legitimately had an opioid use disorder, thought that they were using heroin and oh, surprise, they all tested negative. So none of them were able to actually get methadone therapy and people didn't really know why. Why did they all test negative? So not too much longer, about six months later down in Southern California in Riverside, this was now in December, there was a report that came out about how there was quote, fentanyl available to the junkie on the street. And that, that article cited below by Ayers was the article that had that quote. Uh, where now there were reports that people were not just hospital staff, but now actually people were misusing fentanyl and fentanyl, possibly fentanyl analogs, and this was not pharmaceutical fentanyl. So in 1980, there was an outbreak of something that was called China White. And, and what is China White? You can see if you look at this picture why it was called China White. China White actually was originally referring to heroin itself. And there was, an especially heroin, of course, can come as, as in many different varieties, it can be the kind of a sticky, dark black tar type of heroin. You can have a light brown powder, but this heroin was highly pure. It was a white powder from Southeast Asia. And so that's why it was called China White. And then starting at by the end of 1979 and 1980, like I was showing you, we had these reports of people, all these people who were using what they thought was quote, China White. 
um, that were not actually testing positive for heroin. And so they were, in this case, using relatively potent fentanyl analogs. And it turns out there was not just one outbreak of China white, as I'm going to show you, there were several. And so there's not just one fentanyl analog that was contained within China white. So the very first recorded outbreak, at least that we of, of that we're aware of, happened, as I mentioned, at the end of 1979, beginning in 1980. And that one contained alpha methyl fentanyl. But there were several other subsequent outbreaks over the next decade, and those, uh, at least the three that we know of for sure, they had three methyl fentanyl in them instead. And I'm going to show you uh, the the differences between those and why it was relevant. Because actually, it if you think about the um, the ability of chemists at the time in the early 1980s to figure out the structures of compounds, the equipment they had to use was much more primitive than what we do now. So this was not a, a minor issue or a minor problem in this first outbreak in 1980. There were 110 deaths. Most of them were in California. This did not spread coast to coast at the time. It was just in the West for the most part and, and almost entirely in California. So here you see the structure of 3-methylfentanyl at the, at the top, and it looks almost like fentanyl, except for this part right here, this extra methyl group. And so if you look at, I've blown up the structure here so it's easier to see, if we start numbering this piperidine ring, which is what you call that six-membered ring with the nitrogen in it, you start on the nitrogen and you number around the ring. And so you can see I've numbered it one, two, three, four. And so that's why it's 3-methyl, because that methyl group is attached to the, to the third carbon in that, uh, in that ring. There is a proton here on the fourth carbon, so I've drawn that in because typically when we draw these, these line structures, we don't include the protons. Uh, but, the, but just to make everyone aware, there is a proton there as well. And so why is this important? It comes to be important because the DEA chemists, and they had a very sophisticated lab for the time, but again, it's fairly primitive to what we can do now. Um, they had quite a bit of difficulty identifying what they were seeing in 1980. They originally did think it was 3-methylfentanyl, and it turned out not to be. So why did they get confused? Okay, so here again, here's fentanyl. And again, this is the four position in the ring there that I've shown you before. And here's three methyl fentanyl. And here you see the three and four positions I've circled. So the methyl is on the three position and you can see there's a nitrogen there, an amide attached to that four position. And this is an NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, which is similar to MRI, but we use it for molecules instead of for people. And I'm not going to teach all of you how to interpret NMR spectra, but this is the actual NMR spectrum that the DEA chemists had. And just to orient you a little bit, these are where the aromatic protons are. Those are on the, the two benzene rings. Down here are where all the CH2 protons are, the aliphatic ones. But the one we're interested in is this one right here at 4.7. And that represents position four on the piperidine ring. And so you wonder, well, how did the chemists know that they had gotten the wrong structure? It's because they saw something called a triplet of triplets here, which could only happen if you had two CH2s next to that proton at position four, which you clearly do not have with 3-methylfentanyl. And that was how they knew they had to reconsider what the structure was. And they finally did figure out after three months that the correct structure is alpha-methylfentanyl, which looks almost like 3-methylfentanyl and almost like fentanyl, except for now you see there's an extra methyl group here at the alpha position next to the piperidine nitrogen. So again, this was a, a pretty good feat of, of uh, elucidation of the structure by them. And, and they did not have a lot of the fancy equipment that we have to, that we'd be able to do this much more quickly now. 
Okay, I mentioned there were several other outbreaks and many of the subsequent ones that we know of had three methyl fentanyl in them instead. So one that's fairly well documented happened about eight years later in Pittsburgh. And here what happened was in one of the hospitals in Pittsburgh, they basically saw there was a cluster increase of, over, of overdose deaths from opioids. And I have colored these reds. So you can see where this happened. It, it happened over about a period of a month and a half. And they had 39 overdoses, which is more than their norm. Um, and again, these folks all tested negative on their UDS for, for the urine drug screen for heroin. Uh, they did have, unfortunately, 18 deaths from, from this outbreak. And they were able to figure out that the agent here, as I mentioned, was actually 3-methylphenyl. So what the DEA, the DEA agents weren't wrong. The DEA chemists, they just were a little bit ahead of their time. And it was actually 3-methylphenyl that was causing the outbreak in 1988 in Pittsburgh. All right, so not too much longer after that, and this was now at the end of 1989, there was an entirely forgettable movie that came out called Tango and Cash. And it was called Tango and Cash after, those are the two police officers. This, this was taking place in LA. These two, these two police officers in the movie were involved with a bunch of, of drug busts. And, and, and so that was where the name came from. And it started also then becoming the name of a local form of heroin. Uh, and then in about a year later, in February of 91, this is an article from the New York Times talking about, quote, toxic heroin. And I'm going to blow that up so you can see it. Um, and so basically, it says that it's killed 12 people there. And, and interestingly, that some of the, quote, addicts were still seeking this drug. And basically, the, the thought process and, was that because people were overdosing from it, that it must be some pretty good stuff. And basically what had happened to the people that died is that they were too greedy, they used too much of it. And so if you think, where does that, where does that thought process come from or where did that idea come from? Uh, this is another very brief letter to the editor that was published in, in JAMA at the time. And so this was a person who was an ethnographer. He was actually in New Jersey, which also had a few of these cases. And he interviewed several people who were opioid use um, paid, drug patients um, who were actually or, or had shown up in the ED, these folks were actually looking for a brand name called Tango and Cash because they had they knew that people had died from from using it. Uh, and they, and as I mentioned, thought it was pretty good stuff. So that's where where this idea came from. This gentleman here is Anthony Volker. He was the chief of the New York City Police at the time. And so he went on and on the news and was obviously very concerned because the bulk of this outbreak was happening in New York City. And he wanted to warn people, hey, this is not just a really good amount of, or a really good type of heroin, that this is actually something different. It's not actually heroin. So as mentioned, there, there had been this tango and cash circulating around and that's what people thought they were getting. Uh, but the, about a year later, the stuff they were getting was not actually heroin. And again, it was either a fentanyl or a fentanyl derivative. And they were not able in 1991 to determine exactly what was in the so-called tango and cash heroin uh, that was being sold in that, in, at that point. But it was definitely not actually heroin. Uh, they tested it for heroin and found none in there. So as mentioned, there were quite a number of people affected and it happened in three different states. I didn't mention Connecticut also had some cases um, there were over 100 people that had to be hospitalized and, and showed up in EDs around the area, and 12 people did die, mostly in New York and New Jersey, with a couple of deaths in Connecticut as well. So what are the things I want you to take away from this? One is this idea that, you know, we think about this fentanyl 
epidemic as being something that's fairly recent. And there's no question that the current fentanyl epidemic is fairly recent. It's it's only been in the last eight or eight or so years that we're seeing it coast to coast and in other countries and, and, and on such a scale that we've seen it in before. But actually these types of episodes, not just with fentanyl, but also with fentanyl analogs that have not been ever approved or tested in humans, this contamination and or adulteration has actually been going on for several decades. It's been going on at least since 1980 that we know about. And the other thing is that even though these other outbreaks were, were relatively small and we don't have very good documentation of them compared to the current outbreak, but they were kind of similar in terms of how they went down, where people would weren't necessarily looking for that drug, and although they were in some cases, and they didn't necessarily know what they were getting, and so it did unfortunately then affect uh, affect people who didn't know what they were using, and that they were getting a much more potent opioid than what they expected.